Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. So this is just kind of extemporaneous. Um, tonight we're going to be talking about rocks, and not the geological type. But one of my favorite um, hymns, do you have one that just comes to your mind when you're not thinking about anything else? What do we call those, Ben? Earwigs? I don't know. Earworms? You don't know, huh? Okay. Um, mine is come thou fount of every blessing and uh, verse number two here I raise mine Ebenezer hither by thy help I'm come and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home so you know what I'm going to ask what's an Ebenezer how many of y'all have taught that in Sunday school how many times Eben is what Stone, help, the stone of help. Okay, what's the story? First Samuel 7, the Ark of the Covenant has been captured by the Philistines. Through a long and circuitous way, it's been returned to Israel, and then the Philistines and Israel are going to go to battle. And it says that the Lord made a loud noise and discomfited, confused the uh, Philistines, and Israel routed them. And then Samuel does what? He sets up this memorial stone, which is a memorial stone of help. Okay. Our Ebenezer. Uh, The other evening, we had a family visiting with Leo Cardia, and uh, maybe you met them. They have, uh, she has her name, remember the name? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Yeah. She has three children. And one of the children, I think the eldest is, eldest is a boy, and his name is Ebenezer. So I asked him, do you know what that means? He looked at me like, no, I'm not sure. So I gave him an assignment. I said, you go and you find out uh, what that means. He said, I think, I think it has something to do with Moses. And I said, well, you, you go, go look it up. Jesus is coming out of the temple, and he has just, in Mark's gospel, has... Um, uh, talked about the widow's might. And in Mark's gospel, you go into the next chapter, and his disciples are standing there on the temple grounds, and they're looking around at the magnificent buildings. And probably at that time, because it wasn't finished, there were probably still some stones that were lying around to be used. Uh, some of those stones weighed between 50 and 80 tons. They were huge. Those were probably already in place, these magnificent buildings. And the disciple says to Jesus, look at these great buildings. Aren't they magnificent? And what does Jesus say? Yeah, look at these great buildings. Not one what? Stone will be left upon another. Every one of them will be torn down. And, of course, that happened about 30-something years later. But I think that they were shaken during the um, crucifixion pretty substantially. So another stone story, and we'll come back to that. There are over 2 million refugees that have crossed out of uh, 
Ukraine over the past month, and they are in a diaspora. What's a diaspora? A spreading. They're spreading all over Europe. Does that remind you of something? Acts, which chapter? 7 and 8, after the stoning of Stephen, and then in the 8th chapter, the Hellenistic Jewish Christians were spread out. It was disastrous. They were being pursued by the authorities. But what man intended for evil and bad, God used for what? Good. Um, those refugees will go into countries, we, we call them refugees. Back in my day, when I lived in Europe, we called them DPs. What does that mean? Displaced persons, yeah. Back in those days, there were a lot of Turkish people that had moved out of Turkey after World War II and moved into, uh, into Germany. And it kind of transformed the economy of Germany. So, you know, um, we talked a couple of weeks ago about evil and suffering about three weeks ago. Can anything good come out of such, something so evil with so much suffering? Some of these families will... Uh, well, all of them will experience some kind of culture shock, won't they? They'll go to homes, fam, uh, stay with families, maybe churches or whatever in countries that many of them have not visited. You know, um, Natalia's family is going to make it to the Netherlands. A little bit of a different culture between Ukraine and the Netherlands. One of the things that can come out of that is well, some of those people will do what? They will adapt to the culture. Some of them will not return to the Ukraine, probably. They'll settle in there and make their living and home there. Many of them will go back home, hopefully after the war is over, and resume life, which may not ever be normal again. But a lot of them will probably settle into a new culture and merge. Uh, we talked about the problem that there will be uh, profiteers that will take advantage of this situation. We need to pray for them that they will be safe wherever they go. Those that are Christians that find themselves in Christian churches and Christian homes, I'm sure, and, and even those that are not Christians will be welcomed by those that are not Christians, but especially those that are Christians that are welcomed into Christian homes, they will be welcomed as what? Not so much Ukrainian refugees, displaced persons, but as what? Brothers and sisters in Christ. Because there is no international border in the house of God. Um, and I do think that one of the great things that can come out of this, Natalia and I were talking about it before, a lot of these, such as out of her church, are evangelical Christians that are on fire for the gospel. And the diaspora may have a very powerful and transforming effect in Europe. We need to pray for that. We need to pray that the gospel seed that is planted out of this will transform a... European continent that many have called post-Christian. I don't believe in that. I don't believe that there is a society that's post-Christian. Uh, it's really pre-Christian is what it is. It's really not much different than pagan Europe was when the gospel came to it before. I prefer not to think about what is no longer and instead look at the possibility of what is to come. And so... Here you've got a refugee camp. You can see that it's a Ukrainian refugee camp because of the flag that is the upper left-hand corner. You know, these people not knowing what their destiny holds, but I, I guarantee you this, God knows, and he cares. We're in a series called Masterpiece in the Making. It goes from Ephesians 2, 11, 
which Mark began preaching from last week, to 321. That's the end of chapter 3. The subject is becoming God's household, I think. When we're talking about the masterpiece, what is the masterpiece? The masterpiece, I believe, is God's household. It's God's family. It's God's church. This is the second of five sermons in that series. The first one that Mark preached on was reconciled and united into one body. And it was verses 11 through 18. And as you heard from him last week, the basic idea here is the unifying of the people of God from disparate parts, the Jews and the Gentiles brought together. This message today, the second, is built on one foundation, and it goes from verses 19 through 22. And I think that the subject here is, once they've been brought together, it's constructing God's household. It's building God's household. And then you go to Sermon 3, that will be next week, that is Joel and it is the stewardship of the mystery of Christ, verses 1 through 6. Um, I'm not going to uh, second-guess Joel. If, if I, I think that the central idea, of course, is the mystery of Christ there. I think it's about unveiling something, and I think it's about unveiling God's blueprint for his house. And the blueprint is what? It's a lot bigger than we thought. It is not just for Jews. It is also for all nations. And then the fourth sermon is God's eternal purpose to grant access through Christ. That's verses 7 through 13. I think this has to do with instilling confidence in the faithful that are in God's house. And then finally, we come to the end of chapter 3, and that is being strengthened by knowing God's power and His presence and His love. And this is really about fortifying the, the members of the household, that God can do things that we can't even imagine, that we cannot even hope through the power of His Spirit. So that's, that's where we are in the series, and it puts this message in context. So the, the passage tonight begins in chapter 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So I think it's pretty obvious the opening example I gave about the Ukrainian refugees. You know, God brings people together from disparate parts. You look at Gamble Street Baptist Church and the folks that we have from so many nations, and he brings together and unifies them and then constructs his household out of that. The previous series that we did talked about the identity that we have in Christ over about seven, seven weeks. And then we move into this building God's masterpiece. And last week it was about being reconciled and uni united in one body, united in one body. Tonight we move from being united to being unified. And I think there's a difference. Paul explains how God unifies his people on what? On one foundation. So I would organize the message this way, three parts. Verse 19, we are unified as God's household. Once we were not unified, now we are. Secondly, in verses 20 through 21a, the beginning of verse 21, then we're built on the foundation. The foundation of what? I'm going to suggest to you the foundation of God's Word that has two different applications. And then finally, we are growing in verse 21b through 22. We're growing into what? We're growing into being the Lord's temple. So let's take a look at the first of those. So you see, you're no longer, as he says here, strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens 
with the saints and are of God's household. In other words, they're stranger. It's talking about what they formerly were, okay? You formerly were strangers and aliens. Strangers is a word that means uh, a group that does not share the same things with you. Foreigners that don't share the same maybe values, the same background, the same heritage, like the Ukrainian refugees moving into Germany and into France and into the Netherlands. Actually, this is a technical reference back to what um, Mark preached uh, last week. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. Specifically, what kind of strangers is he talking about here? Strangers to what? What does it say in verse 12? To the covenants of what? Promise. And Mark did a wonderful job last week of carrying us through the covenants of God to show us the heritage of those that were God's people. And now it becomes a heritage not only of Israel, but it becomes a heritage of those that are not just Jews, but Gentiles who follow Christ. So, you see, once you were strangers, and that is strangers to the covenant of promise, and you're also aliens, that means outsider. It's a little different than foreigner. It means those who live nearby but don't have citizenship. It's like the next door neighbor that you have that is not a U.S. citizen. They live nearby, but they are not of the same citizenship. It literally means one who is alongside your house. So they're neighbors. They're sojourners. They're like pilgrims. This morning I was talking to a family that was visiting. Maybe some of you met them. I said, where are you from? And they said, well, most recently we have come. Where did they come from? Pittsburgh. But then as you talk to them, they had lived before that in Portland, Oregon. They lived in San Antonio, Houston. Here's a picture of a peripatetic family of sojourners moving from place to place. I, I sympathize and empathize with that because y'all know I was an army brat. I still am. You know, I, I grew, grew up from pillar to post, from hither, thither, and yon. You know, I don't, I, I was with my high school graduating class one year. You know, I don't go back to reunions. They don't know me. I don't know them, you know. <laughs> so it's that, it's that sort of idea of being a sojourner, you know, moving from place to place and never really actually quite, if you've been in that culture before, you know what I mean. You, about the time you've been there about three years and you begin to fit in, it's time to move on. You never quite fit in. And that's what he's saying here. At one time, you were like the next door neighbor who's moving on, sojourning, and it's sort of like a pilgrim. Formerly, and this was talking about the Ephesians, they were formerly what? They were formerly pagans. And that is dealt with in the passage that Mark talked about last week. You see, formerly you were what? You had this former lifestyle, and that's covered in the passage that I preached from at the beginning of chapter 2. What was that former lifestyle? It was a worldly and sinful lifestyle, and they were pagans, which Mark talked about last week. And they were alienated at one time. They were like the scapegoat, sort of. And the scapegoat was sent where? Outside the camp. Not inside the camp. And you remember the language that Mark reminded us of last week. They were uncircumcised, so they were different from the circumcised. They were separate. Then he uses this term separate from Christ. They were excluded from the commonwealth. You see, that's political kind of language. They were strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope because they were without God in the world and they were far away. This is the former state. They were the strangers. They were the aliens. But he says, he says here, the good news is what? What is it? What precedes it? No longer. 
no longer strangers, no longer aliens. Now the Ephesians have been united with God's people in Christ Jesus. And Mark covered that last week in verses 13 through 18. What does it mean? It means that they have been brought near. They then have the covenant of promise. And the covenant of promise was not bought by the blood of goats and bulls. The covenant of promise was not bought by keeping the law. The, the, the covenant of promise was fulfilled, fulfilled and sealed by what? The blood of Christ. His blood sealed the covenant of promise. And that is what uh, Mark t- told us about last week. There's a parallel passage that tells us about this that Paul wrote in Colossians. Colossians 1, it says, Christ is our peace that has done this. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formally alienated, and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. You see, so Paul's telling the Colossians very much the same thing, the inhabitants of Colossae, what he's telling the Ephesians. You have been brought back, you have been brought into the fold through the blood of Christ. And he brings peace. So what does he do? He brings peace to two groups, to the Gentiles and to the Jews. Mark reminded us last week that it He did this by breaking down a barrier, a wall between the two. And how did he establish that peace? He stopped the enmity. But is that enmity really talking about the enmity between strangers? Is it talking about the enmity between Jew and Gentile? Is it talking about the enmity between people? Primarily, no. What was the enmity? The enmity was between sinners and whom? God. Based on the what? On the law. Nobody could keep the law. And the sin then that resulted from disobedience to the law created enmity between God and humans, whether they were Jew or Gentile. And so to summarize where they were as a background for this verse, God brought peace through the cross of Jesus Christ. How? First of all, each person that then submitted to Christ as Lord and Savior was redeemed, and peace was made between that person and God first. And that person might be a Jew. And over here a Gentile then was redeemed and made peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And they then, the enmity is gone. And then, and only then, can you have true peace. Only then can you have brothers and sisters in Christ who come together and there's no enmity before. That is the perfect peace. And so this is what Paul's talking about here. You see, formerly you were aliens and strangers, but now you're no longer aliens and strangers because of what Mark told us last week. The cross of Jesus Christ and His blood has fulfilled the covenant of a promise, and through that reconciliation has been made between you and God. And you are now part of the what? You're part of the commonwealth. You're part of God's household, unified not only in peace with God, but with each other. You're no longer aliens. You're God's people. You know, at the same time, there's a sort of weird thing that happens here. There are a few weird things in the Bible, okay? Aren't they? Some things that are kind of counterintuitive. Is the resurrection counterintuitive? You better believe it. Do we expect that to happen? No. Is it logical? No. Is it needed? Absolutely. And only God can do it. 
What's the counterintuitive part about that? No longer strangers, no longer aliens, but yet in 1 Peter, Peter tells us that we are. Hmm. What's he saying there? Once we then are reconciled to God and we're reconciled to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, it makes us strangers and aliens in a different way. Wow. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Does that sound familiar? Michelle, does that sound familiar? Yeah. She just read it out of 1 Peter 2. I didn't know she was going to read that before we came here tonight. But you can look at my notes. They're right there. Okay? Yeah. It says, For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You, those that had no mercy, but now you have received mercy. Because, beloved, therefore, okay, here's the conclusion. Now that we have the mercy of God, now that we're reconciled to Him, now that there's no longer enmity between us and God, it says, But I urge you as aliens and strangers to do what? To abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. We therefore are strangers in, in, in an alien land, aren't we? We're pilgrims. Our permanent home is not here. Our citizenship is where? In heaven. So we're fellow citizens with the saints, he says here. It means to be the native, natives of the same hometown. Uh, and it doesn't mean exactly this, this, but the idea, I think, is behind it. It means to be a hometown person. You're a hometown guy, and I'm a hometown guy. You know, We're native sons and daughters together. It's that sort of idea. We're part of the same commonwealth, and that's the word that is used in verse 12. Once we were alienated from the commonwealth, and now we are citizens of the what? Of the commonwealth together. And this includes the saints. It includes all of those that have come before and all of those that will follow. Our citizenship is in heaven. The Old Testament saints that have gone on to be with the Lord and those that are living now and those that are yet to come. Their home is in heaven and we're part of that kingdom commonwealth with the saints. And this goes back to the very beginning of the, of the, the, uh, the, of the letter. Uh, they have been, what is a saint? What do we say? The hagios. A couple things about being a saint. One, you're what? Set apart. And another is you're what? Sanctified. You are holy. This has a universal application, okay? All the saints of all the ages, but specifically he's speaking to them as the saints in Ephesus. So it's also another way of speaking about the church. So both the universal kingdom of God and the saints that are in the church. So he's speaking to them as their identity, I think, here. He's saying, okay, now, Ephesians, you who were once alien and you were pagans, now you are part of the body. The wall has been torn down. You are part of the church then with the Jews that are in there in the church with you and those saints. You have been made holy and blameless in chapter 1. You have exhibited love for the saints in chapter 1. And you have an inheritance as the saints in chapter 1. And he's going to talk a little bit further about this sainthood and what it means when he comes to chapter 4. And he says, I also equip the saints in order to edify the whole body. And in that equipping, we have one of the great passages on the gifts and offices of the church. So, fellow citizens with the saints, universally but also in the church. We are God's household. We belong to God's family. We belong to God's house. You know that this included blood relatives, but who else? Those that were what? Galatians 4 and Romans 8. We have been what? Adopted 
So it's not only those that are a bloodline, but it's those that have been adopted and here adopted through Christ. And it also included the fellow servants that were the household servants. It's the household of God. First Timothy defines what the household of God is very explicitly. There's a definition, 1 Timothy 3.15. The household of God is this. It is the church, there it is, ecclesia, of the living God who is the pillar and ground of all truth. So there's a correlation here between household, living in this family, and being saints that he's talked about in the previous part of the verse. Fellow citizens with the saints, and now you're the household of God. There's a correlation here. Because if the household of God is the church... What's the Greek word for church? Ekklesia, what does it mean? Ek, out of, kaleo. The church is the called out ones. Those that are set apart. Called out from in the midst of worldliness to constitute the church. Okay? That's the household, that's the church. The saints are what? those also that have been set apart. So if you're a fellow citizen with the saints, you're part of the household of God that has been called out and set apart to be sanctified and holy. um, This household, Peter talks about building the household in chapter 2. And we heard that passage read just a few moments ago. We are a spiritual household made of what? When she read that passage about being a spiritual household, what are the components, the human components of the household that it's spoken about by by Peter? You are living stones. He... Can you hear me? Okay. He is that megalith. He is that rock. He is that cornerstone. But we also are what? Stones in the spiritual house, and he's building a spiritual house out of us. The relationship in the household of God is found in Hebrews, the third chapter. Christ, you know, there is a house, and Moses had his house, but the author of Hebrews says, who is greater? Who is greater, the one that serves in the house or one who builds the house? He says the one who builds the house, and he says the one that builds the house is the son, and he is over that household. So Hebrews tells us that we are in his house and it gives us our relationship to the household. Christ is the head and the builder of the house and we serve him in it. And it's God's household of faith in Galatians, the sixth chapter. And we're told there, if we're part of the household, what we do is we endeavor to do good for all people. We endeavor to bear one another's burdens and to do good for all people. But it it says, especially for those who are members of the what? of the household. And then finally, dealing with household, I don't think this is stretching it too far. Uh, there are, it's talking about the household of the church, but also in the church you have the households of the people that come together. So it's not just individuals, it's households that constitute the church. And in the New Testament, there are definitive household codes that tell us how to live. Uh, one of those uh, we will deal with later in Ephesians, the fifth chapter. It talks about the relationship between what? First of all, husband and wife. And then relationship between whom? Parents and children. And then the relationship between whom? 
slaves and masters, or workers and their employers, their bosses. We find these household codes about the households that come into the household of God in several places in the New Testament. The other primary one is in Colossians, the third chapter. Some would say in, in Titus, in chapter 2, and 1 Peter 2, they're also household codes. So, this idea of the household of God is very rich in its biblical meaning. Uh, we're, we're part of a household where we take care of each other. Christ is the head of that household. It's a household of faith, and also we live by his codes. Secondly, we are built on God's word. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fit, is being fitted together. I, I believe when it talks about this foundation, it's really talking about God's word. First of all, God's revealed and written word. And that, of course, is the apostles and the prophets. So who are the apostles? The narrow definition, of course, those who witnessed the resurrection. We talked about that this morning. That's the narrower definition. Acts, Acts uh, the first chapter. But we, we have a broader definition of apostles. There are others that are called apostles in the New Testament that did not witness the resurrection explicitly. And they are uh, the ones that have a gift of apostleship. We're going to find that a little bit later in Ephesians 4th chapter. He gave some for what? Some that are apostles, some that are, some that are prophets, some that are evangelists, some that are pastors and teachers. And also, too, it is these apostles that we know, especially the first, especially those that witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that form the basis of the New Testament teachings. How do we know that? Because Acts, the fourth chapter, says that they continued in the what? The teachings of the apostles. This morning, I mentioned two fundamental things in the foundation of the early Christian church. One was the kerygma, the preaching of what? The gospel, and especially focused on the resurrection. The other thing we mentioned this morning was what? The didache, the teaching. And this just isn't just any teaching, it's the what? It's the teaching of the apostles. And then the prophets. These are the fourth tellers. Who are prophets in the Old Testament? Well, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Zechariah. But not just they. Who was the first prophet in the Old Testament? Abraham. He's the first one that's identified as a prophet. Moses was a prophet, partly because, of course, he wrote the, the, the Torah, but he was a prophet in his own right because he did what? He foretold the Word of God as well as foretelling. It's a general term that is used basically for the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus says, don't think that I have come to abolish the what? The law, which was composed by God's prophet Moses, and the prophets. It's a kind of a code word that's used for the Old Testament. But it's not limited just to the Old Testament. Were there New Testament prophets? Who is the greatest New Testament prophet? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> was Jesus a prophet? Yes. And who was a forerunner prophet? John. And then we have Agabus. We have um, Ananias. There's several new... And we have some female prophets in the New Testament. The daughters of whom? Philip. Philip the apostle? No. Philip the who? The deacon who was the evangelist. So these are those that foretell the word of God. And in the Old Testament, we also have the books. But also, too, there are those that have the gift of prophecy that Paul talks about in Ephesians 4th chapter. So you put those two things together, and I think what is being said here 
is basically the Word of God that comes through His apostles and His prophets. And a little bit later, next week, Joel is going to preach on this. He's going to talk about the apostles and the prophets who do what? They reveal the mystery of Christ. So the foundation of this household of God is the Word of God that comes to the apostles and the prophets that Jesus fulfilled, and He Himself was one of those. But it's also upon the other Word, not the written, revealed Word like that, but the what? The incarnate living Word, the Logos, Jesus Christ, who is here described as what? The extreme corner, the chief corner, the cornerstone. What does a cornerstone do? It joins two walls together. The stone, Jesus, well, the, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 118, the stone that the builders did what? Rejected. Rejected. Where is that quoted in the New Testament? When Jesus in the temple tells a story about the unfaithful, the wicked tenants, and at the end of that story, it's very clear <laughs> that he has been speaking about the religious leaders of his day. Then he says what? This is the stone the builders rejected. And it is God who has done this. And it is marvelous in our sight. What's he saying? That prophecy in the Old Testament is speaking about whom? This was during Passion Week. Who is that stone that builders have rejected? He is inferring very strongly that it is himself. The stone that is the foundation of the spiritual house is Jesus Christ. And in 1 Peter, Michelle once again read about this. We're living stones. We are built on the foundation of the cornerstone that we know is Jesus Christ. And those who believe in that chief's cornerstone will not be what? Not be disappointed. But then there's a caveat it says, but it is not, not just a cornerstone, it is also a stone of what? Stumbling, because there are those that will not believe, and it will lead to their destiny, which is doom. He is the cornerstone. So you've got two foundations here. You've got the written word, and you've got the living word, and he is the one that the whole, the whole building plums on. Um, and you put these together, also his words are part of the written word. He said what? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never what? Pass away. So here's the living stone that is proclaiming the word of God. The whole, world be, the whole building is being fitted together. It literally means to be fitly joined together. In Christ, on top of this cornerstone, or at this cornerstone, two walls converge. One is a biblical union. What converges in Christ biblically? The old, what? Covenant and the new covenant come together in the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. He's also speaking about an ethnic and cultural union. Those that were disparate parts, they were alienated from each other. They were alienated from God. They were Jews and the Gentiles, two different, quote, races. These two walls have been joined together, the Jew and the Gentile on the same foundation. And Jesus Christ then provides the square plumb as he brings those together so that they are not only tightly fitted, but they square according to God's purpose. And upon that, the household is anchored. You know, in uh, Ephesians 4, we'll come to it a little bit later, it reminds us of this anchor of Christ. It says, you know, you're no longer like children who were tossed about by every wind of doctrine. And then in verse 14, he says this, but speaking the truth in love, that's one of my favorite passages. Do you like that passage? 
but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. You see, this is in this series about the, the, the masterpiece here. You're to grow up in all respects unto him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fit together and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. And this causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So you have this picture a little bit later in Ephesians about once again being fit together and there we need to remember that Christ is the cornerstone. And then finally, in conclusion, we come to we are not only fit together, we not only brought together, fit together on the foundation of the Word and on Christ and He is the cornerstone, we are growing. We are growing into the Lord's temple. The whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple of the Lord, in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Well, you know, it's, it's easy to overlook this very simple fact. This passage says that we're doing what? We're growing. This is a growing household. The people of God, the church, the household of God, is an organic living body. What kind of stones are they? Living stones. What does this mean? We're growing. We're becoming what God designs His church to be. Is Gambrel Street the same thing today that it was yesterday? No. It doesn't mean that necessarily it's better today or worse today. Or, but we are growing. We are changing. Those of you who have been a part of this church for 30 or 40 years, 30 or 40 years, have you seen changes? Absolutely. And in that change, there's also growth, isn't there? We are becoming what God designs us to be. He has a purpose for us tomorrow. And we need to know what that is and grow into that purpose. This growth is not about size. Although, as we said this morning, the church exploded at the proclamation of the resurrection. And it continued to grow each day. Would we hope and wish and pray that Gambrel Street Baptist Church grows in that same way? Yes, not so that we can have a lot of members, but so that more people come into the kingdom. And more people go out and share the gospel. And more people are one to Christ. But ultimately the growth that he is talking about here is not size. As good as that is. What's he talking about? He says you are growing into a what? Holy temple. This is about growing in character. It's about growing in holiness. It's about sanctification. Which is a one time thing. You are sanctified in Christ. And it is also a, an ongoing process isn't it? And that growing in holiness, the ultimate purpose of that on this earth is, of course, that we're obedient to God, that we please God. But what pleases God most? John 15. What glorifies God the Father most? If we're on the vine and we're growing, that we do what? We bear much fruit. That's the purpose of our growing. This isn't so much about how many People occupy the pew on Sunday morning or this evening. It's about what? How God grows us and how he grows the kingdom through our influence. We're growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Each believer is a temple. We know that. There are at least three passages that Paul uses for the Corinthians that speak about this in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. You're God's temple inasmuch as each one of you is God's sacred dwelling. Of course, do you not know that you're the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells where? And you. If any person destroys the temple of God, God will destroy that person, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. 
Is the building upstairs and this building, is it holy? Yes. It's set apart for God's purpose. Should we respect this building? Yes. Should there be decorum in this building? Yes. Should there be a sense of holiness and awe in this building? Yes. It doesn't preclude having joy and, and enjoying being together, but this is a holy place. But folks, that is nothing in comparison to the holiness of the temple that God has built in you. He goes on to say a little bit later in 1 Corinthians that, that one of the reasons that, that it's so precious is because, and he says, don't you know that you're the temple of God and don't you also know that you are bought with a what? With a price. You see, there was a price to build this temple. And then in the second letter to the Corinthians, he then goes on to say that because we are the holy temple of God, we're to remain sanctified and to keep this temple of ours free from idolatry, to remain clean. And here we have this idea once again of kind of pilgrim aliens separate from the world. Because God's Spirit dwells in us, we are, and what's the phrase here? We are a temple in the Lord. He dwells in us in this temple, and that means that we are in Him. We're built together. It means that we're built along with others that He brings together. You notice what He says here. He doesn't say, you are building. He says what? You are built together. And you know what kind of verb that is. It's not an active verb. It's a what? It's a passive verb. Who's doing the building? Oh, we work hard in the kingdom of God, but who is it that builds the household? It is he who builds the household. We're fitted together because he brings the disparate parts together in just the right relationships, sort of like a jigsaw puzzle. Each part fits perfectly together, if you can figure out which part goes where. You know the blue sky part? That's hard. Yeah. Each piece is important in that jigsaw puzzle. Have you ever gotten to the end? And there was that one piece. Did you ever buy a used jigsaw? Don't buy a used jigsaw puzzle that, does, that hasn't sealed, okay? Because almost invariably what? A piece will be missing, and it's obvious. You see, God's household is not complete. You're a part of that household, and each one of you is a part of the jig that makes the saw complete. It's like Paul's description of the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. You may be an eye, you may be a hand, you may be a foot. Which is most important? They're all necessary. And no part needs... I believe this. In every church, God brings together all the people that He needs and wants in that church with the gifts that He needs and wants in that church to accomplish the purpose for that church as it grows into being who God is. And if God's brought you here, He's brought you with spiritual gifts. Don't let your puzzle piece be missing. For we know... Um, then he says, it's in the Spirit. This is done by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual house that is indestructible. That's important. We're living stones, and I know that there's the bodily resurrection, but there is a spiritual dimension that, to this that is indestructible. What he is building parallels what he's talking about in 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter. We read this usually at funerals, okay? talks about the aging body that's decaying and we're, we're wearing out. And then he says this, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a what? A building from God. A house not made with our hands. Who makes it? He makes it. 
which is eternal in the heavens. Now, my point here is we're part of the household of God. We're the temple of God, temples of God. We come together to make the household of God. But it doesn't stop there. For Christ is preparing a place for us in heaven, and we are going to have a heavenly home and house that is there. So this household that we have here is a foretaste of that which we are going to experience in eternity. And it is indestructible because of its spiritual nature. Then he says a dwelling of God. It's interesting. He says a dwelling of God. He doesn't say an abiding place for God. Hmm. God inhabits us, and he does not dwell in human buildings. Solomon told us that. Where does he dwell? He dwells in you. He dwells in me, and therefore we are in him. No, it says that this is a dwelling of God. I think it means, it can mean several things. Just ask Joe about this. He can tell you the Greek background, okay? I, I think it can mean that it's God's dwelling, legitimately. It can mean, and I think it does. It can mean it's God's household in, in, such, in, in this way. It has godly-like qualities. It's holy. It's also God's house in as much as God produces it. The house of God. It's the house that God makes The implication is this. We need to let God build the house. You with me? And in building the house, you need to let him do what? Shape and fashion your stone to fit where he wants it to. Unless the Lord builds the house, the psalmist tells us, the builders do what? They labor in vain. To summarize it, Peter puts it this way, and it's from the passage that Michelle read. We're living stones. We're being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? We're organic living stones in God's household. Each stone is also uniquely shaped to fit into the wall. And just like the puzzle analogy a moment ago, if you're God's stone, if I'm God's stone, and I'm not participating in the wall, there is a what? Hole in the wall. And where that hole is, a crack will develop. Your contribution as a living stone is absolutely essential to the building of God's household. This is about the collective identity of God's spiritual house together in his kingdom. And each one of us is called not just to be an inert stone just in a wall, but that passage tells us our purpose is in our identity. Our identity is being stones, okay? That's what we occupy. We occupy a place in the wall. Our identity in Christ is he calls us to be what? Priests, a royal priesthood. And our purpose in being royal priests is to do what? To offer up spiritual sacrifices to whom? To God. So my challenge for us tonight as we close is whether you want to use the jigsaw puzzle analogy or the stone analogy, each one of you is precious in God's sight. Each one of you has a special place to fit in God's kingdom, and he's equipped you for a special purpose, to complete God's household as he brings us together in unity to accomplish his purpose. If you're watching online tonight, do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? And has he then revealed to you where your place is in his kingdom? If not, the invitation is open to you to accept Christ as Lord and Savior, to accept his forgiveness of sin, 
to be redeemed by his blood that he shed on the cross to bring peace between you and God. And then he has a place for you in the kingdom of God. He has a place where you and only you fit uniquely to accomplish his purpose and his kingdom. And the invitation is open for you tonight to take up that challenge. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.